My, my, my family and I were on holiday and we went to the Eastern Cape, so went back to my roots. If my accent has changed a bit, it's because of that, and it has improved, right? Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, we are really excited to be back. I'm excited to be able to continue with this series in 1 John that we've called This Is How You Know, or the title, the tag phrase is, 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 is This Is How You Know, because we really believe that um, God's laid on our hearts for us as a church to understand what it is that John was writing to um, his, his audience about because it is essential for us in this day and age as well to embrace those truths. And obviously not just because it's God's word, but because we face some of the challenges, similar challenges, in fact, sometimes even bigger ones, um, that they're very similar to the ones that we're facing when John wrote what he did in, in the book of 1 John. Um, when we started the series, basically highlighted some of the main reasons why John wrote the book. And one of the main reasons was that there was a whole bunch of false teaching going around uh, about Jesus and who Jesus was. And so uh, John writes to refute that and to bring truth back into the church and so that people could not only distinguish between heresy and truth, but it could also judge whether they were saved or not. And so there was a second reason he wrote. So he wrote, number one, to, to refute false teaching and to rebuke those who were teaching heresy about Jesus, and also to give a sort of litmus test or gauge for those who were in the church in order for them to be able to distinguish uh, between a false Christian and a genuine Christian, and for themselves to be able to be honest with themselves and know whether they were actually believing truth, whether they were saved or not. So, so far in our journey through the book of 1 John, um, we've unpacked a couple of things. John's given a couple of tests. One of them, the first one, was that the genuine believers revere the holiness of God. They revere God, they, they believe God is holy, they believe He's set apart, and they, in light of that, choose to walk in the holiness of God, or in holiness and in the light. That's what it says in chapter 1. Brad unpacked the fact that a genuine Christian is someone who is obedient to God. Your, your professed faith in Jesus is not just a semantical one, it is a life one. You say that Jesus is king and therefore your life looks a certain way and you are obedient to God. And John last week unpacked the fact that a genuine believer is someone who loves his brothers and sisters and loves others, loves God and loves others. And so that's reflected in your life. This week, we're going to be unpacking essentially what John gives as his third test for genuine faith in Jesus Christ, and a third test with which to distinguish between those who call themselves genuine Christians and those who are not. It's, it's a test that's a little bit different to the other ones, because the other ones involve a, a living out of one's faith. This one is more doctrinal. This has got to do with more with what you believe. And although what you believe informs the way you live, this one is a little bit more difficult to see in someone's life. It is more, you've got to hear from them because it's got to do with what they believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. His, it's a test that I think for us hugely is incredibly important um, to understand and to embrace as much as it was in the early church. Because in the church today, there are people who'll say stuff like doctrine divides. So let us, let us lay aside our doctrinal differences. Let us lay aside where we disagree 
and come together and focus on areas where we do agree. You hear this in the church over and over and over again. And I, for one, embrace that, and I can get my head around that, I can get behind that and back that, as long as it's got to do with some open-handed issues, as long as the things we disagree on are are open-handed. And what I mean by that is, it's stuff like, how long should church be? Right? How many chairs should we put? How should we set up church? You know, what should church look like? Should we use lights? Should we have drums? Let's talk about those things. And let's reach this place where we can disagree, uh, we'll agree to disagree. Because where we disagree doesn't necessarily affect whether we're saved or not. But when it comes to closed-handed issues, when it comes to core doctrinal things that will change whether you're saved or not, will change whether you're actually a Christian or not, we cannot afford to agree to disagree. We have to take a stand and assert what is biblically true. I think as we, as we read newspapers, as we read books, as we read articles, as we listen to podcasts and, and different sermons from different people, more and more and more tolerance and unity and love are viewed as way more important than sound doctrinal truth. Now, obviously, I believe that we need to be diligent and we need to persevere in cultivating and protecting and nurturing love and unity within the body of Christ. But here's the thing, not at any cost. I don't think it should be at any cost. Biblical love and biblical truth or biblical love and biblical unity are not divorced from biblical truth. They are not divorced from sound doctrine. To compromise on biblical truth, especially when it comes to the person and work of Jesus, is to compromise in one of the worst ways possible. It's to make such a serious mistake that it will cost you your eternity. And that's what was happening in John's day. There were people who were saying certain things about Jesus and peddling certain teachings about Jesus that were untrue and causing a whole bunch of confusion within the church and essentially selling people a road to hell. There is no room for compromise on the core doctrinal foundations of Christianity. And that's what John starts to get into and that's what he unpacks in his letter and highlights in these next chapters that we're going to read. There's, there's a story about a guy named Neville Chamberlain who was a British guy during World War II. And, um, and he was a guy who compromised. He was a guy who tried to appease. And so what he did was he went over to Germany and he said to Hitler, listen, we'll give you Poland if you just leave us alone, if that will bring peace. And so he went over, he gave Poland to Hitler and came back to Britain proclaiming that there was peace in our times or peace in their times. But Winston Churchill said, and wisely so, that someone who chooses to try and appease somebody is like someone who feeds a crocodile hoping that the crocodile will eat them last. And that's essentially what happened. Even though Hitler was given Poland, he still came back to try and grab Great Britain and the rest of the world. It didn't satisfy his needs. And likewise in the church, if we try and compromise the truth about Jesus, if we try and appease a heretic to avoid confrontation, if we try and avoid offending somebody just to keep the peace, if we try and tell people what they want to hear just to keep them coming back to church, it will eventually lead to spiritual death. That's why John writes what he does in the book of 1 John. And essentially contained in his teaching, in the letter, is this idea that what you believe theologically, what you believe doctrinally about Jesus matters. It's why Paul said to Timothy, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And here's what he says. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. 
persevere in them, he says to Timothy, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers, yourself and your hearers. So that's the stage for this next bit that we're going to read. He's really giving us in these next couple of chapters an understanding of what it means to believe accurately about Jesus. Anything else other than this, or slightly twisted from this, is what John writes and calls a teaching or a spirit of the Antichrist. Let's read together. We're going to read in chapter 2, 18 to 23, and then chapter 4, 1 to 6. Here's what he says. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. I want you to remember that because I'm going to show you something a little bit later. I want you to remember it's a key verse here. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. He then goes on in chapter 4 to say, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So as we read that, according to John, his understanding of the arrival of the last hour, the time that was time that was running out. In other words, the last age of this earth when it was imminent that Jesus was coming back. It's the time that we're living in. The arrival of that time was marked and signaled by those he calls the Antichrist and their coming and their teachings. And when we, I don't know about you, but when we think about Antichrist, before I really looked into what this word meant, I had this idea of this, this really obvious, overt, satanic-looking person who would come and teach, obviously, untruths, you know, pitchfork, red suit, that type of stuff, you know, type of, you know, it's just like you just see and you're like, well, don't even need to hear what he's saying, I can just see he's going to teach nonsense. But that's not necessarily what this word means. The word antichrist does mean someone who opposes Christ, who is, who is overtly and obviously anti-Jesus, but it can also mean and, and does also mean someone who presents a different kind of Christ. It, it's a, in place of a, a subtle change sometimes on the teaching of Jesus. It's, it's someone who seeks to replace Jesus, maybe not totally, but subtly. In other words, it's someone who seeks to, to give a counterfeit version of who Jesus really is and the biblical truth presented to us in the scriptures. And so to help identify 
between the overt and the subtly different changes that these false teachers were giving, John writes to us and he says essentially these two things about Jesus. One, if you accept that he is God and that he was fully human, you are believing the right stuff about Jesus. Anybody who denies that he's the Christ, in other words, anybody who denies that Jesus is God and denies that he came in the flesh, that he was human, and that he was God and human at the same time, carries the spirits of the Antichrist and is not believing or teaching the right stuff. Any teaching about Jesus that denies those truths about him essentially finds its roots in Satan himself. There cannot be any deviation from that. And John writes emphatically to enforce this truth. And I think as a church, we need to be careful to embrace some of the teachings that are out there and make sure that we are rooted in Scripture and understand what Scripture says about the one we call our King. There's this word that is essentially encapsulates what we're talking about here. It's it's a word called the incarnation. Incarnation, not incarnation. Incarnation. It's it's this idea that God came and he, Jesus was incarnated. There was God incarnate. He God came and took on human form. That's essentially the doctrine that John is helping us to understand is truth. That God became man. That Jesus became man. Jesus was God incarnate, fully God, fully human, at the same time. And you'll see why that was so necessary. Firstly, this is why it was important. If someone acknowledges the incarnation, if someone accepts that as truth, as biblical truth, if we read scripture and we read about the incarnation, we go, we believe that what you are doing is you are acknowledging that Jesus is God. Often non-Christians, and I think sadly sometimes those who call themselves Christians as well, will insist that we ultimately worship the same God. There's this idea there that we worship the same God And um, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you call him. You have one name for him, we have another, they say. It doesn't really matter. Or they'll say, we're just talking about different roads, but ultimately those roads lead to the same place. We all end up with God. But I want to be clear on this and just make this statement um, as emphatically as possible. We do not all worship the same God. Those who teach that Jesus was just a good prophet or a a good person, a good man, those who teach that Jesus is just one of the ways to God, do not believe in or serve the same God as those who call themselves Christians. Here's why. Christians believe that God, the one and only God, is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. He is not a God. He's not a demigod. He's not just a way to God. He's not a map or a signpost. He's not just a good prophet or a good man. We believe that he is God. And to believe in the incarnation, to believe in Jesus becoming fully man and fully God at the same time, is to believe that he is God and to say that there is no other. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 8, 58, very truly I tell you, Before Abraham was born, I am. I don't know if you remember the story of Moses when God called him to the burning bush. Moses walked up to the burning bush and God gave him this mandate to go and set his people free. And Moses was terrified. And before he left, he said, who who can I say sent me? Who are you? How are the people going to know that I'm coming with your authority? And God said to him, just tell them 
I am sent you. And what God essentially was saying was, there is no name for me. I just, I am. I am, and I was, and I always will be. It's a name reserved for God. It's a description of God because God, you can't put a name to his greatness. And so when Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day, he says, hey, before Abraham was, I tell you, I am. What he's claiming there is deity. What he's saying is, I am God. That's what he's saying. In the beginning of the book of John, not one John, but the book of John, John writes, in the beginning was the Word, capital W-O-R-D, speaking about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, if your God is not Jesus, if Jesus is not God, we do not worship the same God. Because the God of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is revealed perfectly in Jesus. He's not just a slight representation or just a way or a signpost or a marking or a path amongst many. And although there are many people who seem rather spiritual and religious, they reject Jesus or believe a subtly different version as opposed to the one God's Word gives us about who Jesus is. And while their religion or their spirituality might do them some good, for example, it gives them maybe a good moral framework for living life. It helps them to, 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 to live in such a way that we would call them good people. It ultimately does them nothing before God because rejecting Jesus means they reject God. And when you reject Jesus, you cannot be in relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Why? Because Jesus is God. And I think there's this teaching out there that wants us to separate this idea of Jesus being God. It comes in subtly. It comes in overtly sometimes. But it is sweeping through the church. And I believe God wants us to be very careful with our doctrine and what we believe about Jesus and to not compromise on this fact the same way that John didn't want his readers to compromise on this truth. To know Jesus is to know God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. God. That's why John says in verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If your God is not the God of the Bible, if your God is not Jesus Christ, we do not serve the same God. Also, with regards to believing in the deity of Jesus, we need to remember that no man in and of himself is a sufficient sacrifice for the sin of the world, for all of those who came before us, for all of those who exist now and all of those who will exist. Only God is sufficient to pay a debt that significant. That means that if we believe that Jesus is not God, if the, if, if the readers of the letter of 1 John believed in any way, this is what John was saying to them, if you believe in any way that Jesus is not God, that he's just a mere man or a good prophet, essentially his death on the cross was meaningless. It could do nothing for you. He would have left a huge shortfall in the debt that was owed to God because of our sin. And here's what John essentially is saying. But because Jesus is God, 
his dying was of eternal worth. And those of us who confess him and acknowledge him and him alone as God and King, those of us who put our faith in him will find in him salvation and eternal life because he is God who has made a way. Here's what John was saying as well. If you're not entirely clear on the godness or the deity of Jesus, you cannot be entirely sure about your salvation. Salvation comes from understanding who Jesus is and putting your faith in him and knowing that he was able to achieve what he said he achieved for you. If someone is able to take you and to deceive you about the person and work of Jesus, specifically with regard to his deity and the fact that he is God, they would be able to essentially rob you of eternal life because you would be believing in a different God and a different Jesus, one that is opposed to the teaching of Jesus in the Bible. The second reason why believing in incarnation is so important is this. By acknowledging the incarnation, you're acknowledging not only that Jesus was God, but that he was fully human as well. The incarnation says that God came down to earth, inhabited human form, became human so that he could take on the sins of humanity so that the price could be paid by being a perfect sacrifice for us. It is really important that we understand that Jesus is both God, but also God in the flesh. That's why John emphasizes this in the letter. He goes, anybody who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is antichrist. Anybody who denies that he is the Christ is the antichrist. If the incarnation is not fact, if Jesus has not really been made flesh, if he hadn't been made flesh, if he didn't dwell amongst us, then there is no atonement for sin because how could he then have been nailed to the cross? How could he then have been made lower than the angels? How could he have become a perfect sacrifice for us, relating to us, empathizing with us, becoming like us, and submitting to the Father perfectly like we were meant to? That's what Scripture says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It says, He was made lower than the angels. He suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. If Jesus was not fully God and fully human, he would never have been able to do that for us. If Jesus were not a man, he could never have endured the cross and assumed our sin for us and taken our penalty and our punishments on our behalf. Essentially what John is saying to his readers is that if you deny that Jesus is God and that he came in the flesh, that he was both God and man at the same time, if you deny that, you're essentially denying Christianity. To deny Jesus' deity and humanity is to deny that he is your savior and to reject biblical teaching. That's why John in chapter one starts off the way that he does. And I alluded to that when I started the series, that essentially in chapter one, in the first three verses, he's asserting the deity and the humanity of Christ when he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That which was from the beginning refers to his deity because in the book of, of, of John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning. He's not speaking about Genesis, the beginning when God created. He's speaking about before that, when God just was in the beginning, 
Jesus was. That which was from the beginning. He goes on to say, we have heard, we have seen, we have touched. In other words, he became flesh. Jesus is God, was God, will always be God, and we've seen him. He goes on to say, that life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father that has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What He says there is there's no other way to have a relationship with God except through Jesus. If you want to have a relationship with us, you need to have a relationship with Jesus because we are with Jesus. And because we're with Jesus, we're with the Father. There is no other way. We see this often in our world, and I've seen it over and over again, with people like Oprah, people like Joel Osteen, people like Rob Bell and others. They teach things that go completely contrary to scriptural teaching. Yet they make people feel good, and so their teachings are embraced, and people accept their teaching as truth. There's this brand of Christianity called um, commercial Christianity, where people are making hundreds of millions of dollars off of selling Jesus to people the way that they want Jesus to be sold to them. And compromising on truth over and over and over again just to appease people, to make them happy, to keep them coming back. John in his letter is writing, is going, we can't accept that. Because what you're ultimately doing is maybe providing comfort for people here, but you're robbing them of eternity. Over and over and over again, there are lies being peddled by prominent teachers of the word, people who claim to be Christians. And we need to be aware of that. My heart breaks for the church and breaks for people who are led astray by people because their teaching sounds good and it's 90% truth and 10% lie. And sometimes it's just 90% lie, but it sounds so fantastic. People take it as truth. There's this video clip that I want, that I want to play for you just now, now, but not right now. And I want you to understand something when you listen to this. I'm not out to witch hunt people. I'm not out to, um, to what's the word, defame a person's character or whatever it is. But I am out to call something for what it is because that's what God says our responsibility is, to watch out, to protect, and to encourage each other. I'm not going to tell you who the person is. You might know them, but they're having an interview with Oprah. They are hailed as a Christian superstar, a, a, a prominent teacher of the Word, someone who, who teaches the truth about Jesus. Their church is growing. In fact, it's one of the biggest churches in America. People are flocking to the church daily. They've got like three or four services, lines like you cannot believe to get in. People are coming out amped and pumped for Jesus. But in this interview with Oprah, this person compromises in ways that are unimaginable. And no one that I've seen of so far in the international world has challenged this person. And I just want to say to us, this is the type of teaching that comes to us and that we need to be careful of because in some ways it sounds so good, but at its core is so heretical and dangerous. And it comes from someone who's from a well-known church who's supposed to be a follower of Jesus. And I just want you to listen to what they have to say to Oprah. So we can play that now. Do you believe that only Christians can be in relationship with God? No. 
do you believe that only Christians can be in relationship with God? No, I believe that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in the way I read that, Jesus said he is the, he's the road marker, he's the map. So I think God loves people so much that whether they accept or reject him, he's still gracious and he's still moving and he's still giving you massive red blinking lights for mm -hmm. chances to take a, a right turn where maybe you would take a left. But I believe God loves people. And that's what this whole gospel is based on. It's love. You take the love out of it. We've got a moral book. Now, I don't know if you know who that is. And if you want to know who it is, come speak to me afterwards. But he says a couple of things. There. He says so much stuff that I could preach a series on what was wrong there. But some of the things I just want to highlight not only Christians can have a relationship with Jesus. That's what he said. Oprah says to him, do you believe only Christians can have a relationship with Jesus? He goes, no. I don't understand as a person who's preaching the word and reads the word, how you can say that to somebody without being convicted that you're lying. God's word is emphatically clear. John is clear. If you reject the son, you reject the father. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. There is only one God, and His name is Jesus Christ. If you do not know Him, you do not have Him. How is it possible if Jesus is God to get into a relationship with God? Can God speak to non-believers? Yes. Can God use non-believers? Yes. Is it possible to be in a relationship with the living God without knowing Jesus? No. Why? Because Jesus is God. He says this about Jesus, and I love it. He says, the way I read that, in other words, here comes my opinion, because I, 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 I can't accept teaching you what actually is truth, because it's going to drive you away. It's, it's going to cause me to be intolerant of your faith. He says this, Jesus is just a signpost or a map. And for someone like Oprah who believes there are many ways to God, that sits so well with her and with many people who don't want to accept in the fact that Jesus is one way, that there is one way. Jesus can't be the signpost to God if he is God. He can't just be a map. Jesus didn't say, I'm a signpost or a map. He said, I am the way the truth, the life. And what I love is he doesn't finish the sentence. Jesus says after that, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's exclusive. It's not open. And that doesn't bug me or scare me. I, I celebrate the fact that God has only given me one way and his name is Jesus. He's given me himself. And we need to be careful of the subtle teaching that compromises the truth about the work and the person of Jesus because it is leading people astray and breaking the church. He says this, it doesn't matter whether you accept or reject God. God loves people. That's the same sort of teaching that Rob Bell is pushing, that love wins ultimately. God's righteousness and justice and wrath and judgment are thrown out the window. It doesn't matter essentially what you believe is underlying teaching. God loves people and he's not going to send anybody to hell. Church, God is going to send people to hell. His love is seen in the fact that he gave Jesus and through Jesus we're saved from that. That's why he says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I agree with him there. God loves people. 
but not so much that whether you reject him or accept him, he's just going to get you into heaven anyway. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a condition here. You've got to put your faith in Jesus. He needs to be your God. By saying, taking love out of the book, you end up with a moral book. What you're saying, Jesus is love. God is love. You can't take love out the book without taking Jesus out the book. Forcing a dichotomy that doesn't exist. You're forcing us to accept that only love exists. No, love exists because God's righteous wrath also exists and he doesn't want us to suffer. It's important that we remember, and this is my heart for us, when we remember, when we listen to spiritual teaching, no spiritual teaching is neutral. No spiritual teaching is neutral. No teaching about the spiritual realm, who God is, who Jesus is, none of that is neutral. It either comes from the Spirit of God, from the Holy Spirit, or from the Spirit of the enemy, the Spirit of the Antichrist. John desired very much that his readers would be aware of that fact. He desired that they understand that what they believe about Jesus or what they don't believe about Jesus is incredibly important. He wanted them to understand that if you deny the truth, the biblical truth, the orthodox biblical truth about Jesus, the Son of God as revealed by the New Testament, you do not have the Father and you do not have eternal life. If you deny Jesus yet claim to know God, you are deceived. That's not to say that a new believer must be able to precisely and correctly theologically make statements about the two um, persons of, or the two natures of Christ or about the Trinity to be saved. But it is to say this, that if someone knowingly teaches heretical stuff about Jesus or makes heretical statements about who God is, knowingly or unknowingly, and he's then challenged on that and refuses to respond with repentance and correction, that person's salvation is suspect. Sound doctrine goes along with personal relationship with God. And we have to be careful as a church what we listen to, who we expose ourselves to. We need to make sure that we endeavor in sound doctrine and sound teaching. Not only in our church, but in our personal lives as well. I'm going to end with this this evening. We need to be people who are spiritually discerning by abiding in the Spirit. God has given us the Spirit. That's why John says, but you have the anointing from the Holy One. All of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. I want to enforce this. Abide in the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to lead you. Don't write off that feeling you get when you're listening to something that sounds dodgy. Go and test it. You're not being super spiritual. You're not being a hypocrite. You're not being judgmental. Go and test what you hear all the time. Don't only abide in the Spirit, in other words, spend time with God alone and, and, and ask for the filling of the Spirit, but abide in the Word. Know what God's Word says. Study the Scripture and test everything according to the Word of God. Don't just take it from somebody's lips because they come from an international church or they come from a well-known seminary. Don't just take somebody's word for what they're teaching because they are hailed as a great teacher or a charismatic person. Test everything you hear according to the word of God and you will persevere in sound doctrine and you will save yourself and your hearers. That's what God says. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that it is truth. And Jesus, we declare that you are the one and only God, that there is no way to the Father except through you. 
Jesus, I pray that you would come and by your spirit protect our hearts, guard our minds, keep us safe, hem us in, God. Keep us from heresy as individuals and as a church and help us, God, not to fear man, but to fear you. Help us, God, to bow the knee to Jesus and Jesus alone for the glory of your name. Amen. I invite you guys to stand with us as we spend some time worshiping God together.